This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 20th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I know it is hard to avoid huge news about hurricanes or Russia investigations or secretaries of health and human services taking $60,000 worth of private jets. Yeah, that happened. Didn't notice? That's the Trump difference. Look, I'll call him Rocket Man. It won't change the dynamic in North Korea, but it'll give you cover, Tom. So hurricanes in the Caribbean draw our eyes, our heart. Puerto Rico hit hard today. The latest hurricane death tolls, Harvey, 80 in the United States, Irma above 40. But while we're looking at that, and I'm not saying it's wrong to look at that and to worry about that, know this. Remember this? There was a mudslide last month in Sierra Leone. Perhaps you vaguely remember that. The death toll there, according to the BBC, the mudslides, subsequent flooding, 1,300 people. Now, my point isn't to guilt us into looking at that tragedy versus this tragedy and to have a tragedy off. My point is that hurricanes, Mexican earthquakes, mudslides, there's one thing that could help or limit them all. It's not preventative, but there's one condition that could limit widespread death, and that thing is wealth. The wealthier countries have better construction codes. They can afford to have better construction codes. It's not a failing on their part. The richer you get, the better construction codes you have if you're a functional country. Russia may be the exception. The better warning systems they have in place, uh, responders, that all factors in. But it's mostly the quality of the construction. Wealthier countries usually don't have people piled on top of each other in dangerous areas, like in Freetown, Sierra Leone, where this mudslide happened. Also, I noted this, and very few other people did, that right about the time of Irma, right about the time it made landfall, at least in the Keys, there was a mass shooting in Plano, Texas. Eight people were killed, nine including the shooter. It was the worst mass shooting of the year, and it got almost no attention. It was an estranged husband who was fixated on guns. He opened fire at a private home where people were gathered to watch the opening weekend of the NFL. One woman survived. Who could keep up with all this, right? And when it comes to strong men and malefactors in the world, the plugged-in American used to maybe barely be able to keep note. Uh, there was Putin. There was Berlusconi for a while. You got Mugabe. You got Assad. Of course, Assad. But now that we have our own strong man, it is harder to focus on the foreign ones, isn't it? So Erdogan of Turkey sat down for an interview with the PBS NewsHour. He made news in that interview saying that President Trump apologized to him for the arrest of his security guards who were cracking heads in Washington, D.C. during protests. Huh. You know, I just can't understand 
why the American news consumer can't focus more on international affairs, as with this interview with Erdogan on PBS. I know that the United States officially recognized the PKK as a terrorist organization. However, as long as that is the case, PYD or YPG, which are the extensions of the PKK, I don't think it is the right move to fight Daesh in Raqqa with the PKK, YPG, and PYD. All right. Maybe the inability to pay that close attention is not entirely or all our fault. On the show today, I talk about the prospects of the Graham Cassidy bill, the prospects for passage and for patience. But first, a different angle on the Equifax breach. The insecurity they bring us is not just in the form of someone stealing your information. Equifax, as we know, is one of the three big credit reporting agencies, and due to what technologists call a boo-boo, they may have exposed 143 million people's personal identification, social security number, basically all the tools that a hacker could use to steal your identity. That is known, and we're learning more about that, but I want to go back a little bit and just talk about this company, this industry, and what they've been doing for many years. Joining me now is Gretchen Morganson. She writes the Market Watch column for the New York Times. Pulitzer Prize winning. We got. I'll say it. I'll say it. Pulitzer Prize winning <laughs> columnist Gretchen Morganson. Hello, Gretchen. How are you? Thank you, Mike. I'm good. So let's just get everyone up to speed about what we know about the security breach itself. Tell me if this is about right. It happened earlier than anyone knew. Equifax dealt with it in a way uh, less satisfying than most people would think. And also people within Equifax may have got out from under it before the general public could. Is that all about right? That's about right. You know, as far as the disclosure and the timing was concerned, that's one of the most sort of dispiriting parts of this. I mean, of course, the hack itself is just horrendous and puts all these consumers at risk of of terrible things. But the idea that this was known inside the company and kind of for months nobody really was told is, I think, a real breach of kind of duty by this company to let everybody in on what it was a really horrendous problem. And then afterwards, there's been a move to possibly sell people some protection products or not adequately and uh, sufficiently deal with not only the anxiety, but the reality of uh, identity theft. Now, there's a lot of sort of rumor or word of mouth on how bad it is, but what have you been able to lock down about some of the uh, missteps that Equifax has made with customers since the breach has been revealed? Well, I guess one of the most troubling aspects of this was that the victims included people who went to the company looking for security, i.e., you know, identity theft protection. So exactly the kind of product that you uh, were looking for, you know, those were the people who were exposed. So the paradox of that is, I think, really remarkable. You know, I think the company has finally started to understand the depths of its problem as far as 
consumers and regulators and even criminal prosecutors are concerned, but it was very slow to understand that. And uh, this is a company that really has all the earmarks of a monopolistic enterprise that really didn't feel like they had to um, care about what their customers' needs were. And I think they're getting that wake-up call, Mike, but yeah. uh, it's really a little bit too little, too late. So let's back up a little bit. There are three credit reporting agencies. I understand why they exist. Someone, uh, an entity wants to give a loan and they want to know, is this person worthy of the loan or at what rate? I totally understand why the market would create such companies. That said, it doesn't mean they're doing a good job. So in the past, what evidence has there been that Equifax, TransUnion, all the credit reporting agencies are actually up to the task? Well, there have been problems in the past. I'm sure you've heard of them, Mike, where, you know, these companies had elements of your credit report that were incorrect or wrong. Maybe you had a lower credit score than you should have. You know, so the role that they play is so significant, you really can't discount it. It's so significant, and yet they're kind of these behemoths that don't respond to consumers because they haven't really had to. It's a really big problem because consumers can't can't walk away from these companies. You can't vote with your feet as a consumer and say, you know, say Equifax is doing a bad job. I'm going to go next door to the competitor because that's just the nature of their business. You have no choice. And that engenders in many companies a sort of careless or reckless approach to monitoring, policing their activities and protecting their consumers. You know, I think you put your finger on it when you use the word consumers because I I don't know if the regular person who they monitor is actually their consumer. That's I think their right. con- I think their consumer is the person or the entity that's looking to give a loan and this leads to a couple things. One, not caring about mistakes if the mistake is is visited upon the little guy. And the other thing is not being responsive in a way that a company that sets itself up as we're monitoring your credit, not being at all responsive in a way that uh, we've come to expect in America as opposed to, say, you know, 1970s China. Right. You are so right. I mean, a consumer is the only word I can use because, you know, what are these are just the people of America, right? 143 million families or individuals or whatever. But you're right. They are not consumers. They actually, the banks and the financial institutions and the uh, retail outlets that, um, you know, check on your credit score before they uh, allow you to open a credit card, those are the real consumers of this. Uh, So there is a, a breakdown there in the people who can be hurt by bad practices among these companies and the power that they have. They're, they're essentially powerless to do anything about it. And that is never a good dynamic in a business um, operation. And they remind me a little bit of some of the bond and credit rating agencies that I know you've covered a lot that gave rise to the financial crisis. Maybe almost a mirror image because those credit rating agencies were supposed to be, you know, cool headed and just assessors of risk. But of course, there were all sorts of ways in which they were captured. And it seems like these uh, credit rating agencies there's not too much of a disincentive to make a mistake that hurts the consumer, right? You, they really absolutely. care. They really care about the banks. And so therefore, all, they could always make a mistake to say that a person is not credit worthy, uh, which not only just denies people credit, can deny people employment. And there's no mechanism to check them in the way that there was little mechanism to check, you know, a credit rating agency that said a bond was uh, A quality when it should have been D quality. 
You're right about that. I hadn't made the connection, but honestly, Mike, the the similarities are striking. So one of the similarities I would say is that both types of operations are very shadowy or behind the scenes. I mean, they're not transparent, okay? So when you had the credit rating agencies uh, flame out on mortgage securities back in 2008, it was really because investors couldn't sort of check on their models, check on the um, numbers that they were using and the assumptions that they were using. And that led to a huge mispricing of risk in those securities. So here we have another situation where the entity, you know, in this case, three credit rating agencies have these sort of secret sauce or very sort of private and secret way of assessing credit. And you don't really have any control over that. You know, who's the paying customer? Well, the banks, I guess, pay for this information. So that's who they care about first. But then you have another type of uh, customer who wants security and protection and they let them down big time. So, yeah, the similarities are interesting. So what are the government agencies who are supposed to protect the citizens and have they been asleep at the wheel? Well, this type of operation was never regulated like, say, a bank. So what's interesting here is the wake-up call seems to be that, okay, banks are very closely and heavily regulated for good reason. But if they are supplying information about consumers' credit and, you know, uh, Social Security numbers and or bank accounts and even salaries or holdings um, assets, then why are those entities, if they're receiving that information, why are those entities not closely regulated? I think that's the question that people are now really starting to think through. You know, so you do have calls for a tighter policing or tighter regulation of these companies. I think Governor Cuomo got up and said he wanted them to have the same kind of regulatory framework that a bank has. You know, clearly this is something that they don't want because it's an added cost to their operation. But I think they have proven that unable, at least um, Equifax has proven itself to be unable to safeguard this information. So there's every reason to think that regulation is in order. Right. You've written a lot about regulation and often the dynamic with large sweeping regulations, Sarbanes-Oxley or whatever, is, you know, lots and lots of companies will see their profits diminish. They perceive that and it's probably true in order to comply. But this is only three companies. And I wonder, aren't essentially the most powerful players, the banks, isn't it in their interest to have the credit rating agencies be as good at their job as possible? I wonder if the dynamic is different and we should be more hopeful with actually regulating the credit agencies than we were with the banks. Well, I think that it's a very good point to make that everybody who participates, whether you're an individual or whether you're a bank trying to get the right information, they want the right information. There's no doubt about that. It doesn't help to have bad information. But I think that the companies have really gotten, they were they were really sort of fast and loose with their own protection and their own systems. That's clear from this breach. And so that is, I think, the issue at hand here. And so I I think that if maybe if the regulators do come in, step in and and put some, you know, infrastructure around these practices and around these companies, it would be a benefit. But it remains to be seen whether those kinds of rules would even have prevented this hack. 
Gretchen Morganson writes the Market Watch column for the New York Times. She is also co-author of Reckless Endangerment, How Outsourced Ambition, Greed, and Corruption Led to Economic Armageddon. She's been covering the credit monitoring agencies. And as a result, has your FICO score suffered, Gretchen? <laughs> I don't know because I haven't asked lately. Oh, God. You get, you get been, three free like, ones. I don't want to know. <laughs> you get three free checks. I would use them. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, Mike. Thank you, Gretchen. Anytime. And now the spiel. Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy swore his bill would pass the Jimmy Kimmel test. Swore it up and down. The website of the Washington Post put together this supercut. And just spontaneously came up with something called the Kimmel test. I think it begins to address the Jimmy Kimmel test. We have got to have insurance that passes the Jimmy Kimmel test. But a middle class family can no longer afford. Yes. But with the introduction of the bill, he was called out by critics for not passing the Jimmy Kimmel test. Chief among these critics, Jimmy Kimmel. Stop using my name, okay, because I don't want my name on it. There's a new Jimmy Kimmel test for you. It's called the lie detector test. You're welcome to stop by the studio and take it anytime. Senator Cassidy has gone public, answered questions, and his answer is that, yeah, Jimmy Kimmel is just wrong. I'm sorry he does not understand. Well, it seems that Mr. Kimmel's misunderstanding is rooted more in fact than Senator Cassidy's assertion that Kimmel is wrong. Here are some facts. The bill hasn't been scored by the CBO, and that is to its discredit. That's also a tactic of the people trying to get this bill passed. But the groups that have looked into it estimate tens of millions without insurance. Secondly, the assertion that the bill will help those with pre-existing conditions is based on Senator Cassidy's, it's more of a belief or trust that states who now have the option to opt out of it won't opt out of it. There is some language in his bill about providing adequate coverage of pre-existing conditions, you know, defined by who. Obamacare didn't need words like this. Obamacare just mandated that Insurance cover pre-existing conditions, like the pre-existing condition of a baby born with a heart defect. And the third reason why Jimmy Kimmel is more right than Senator Cassidy is that Senator Cassidy was the one who chose to brand his idea with Jimmy Kimmel's name. He used the Jimmy Kimmel test, why? In an attempt to show that he was the good guy, in an attempt to show that he and the Republicans cared, in an attempt to wade into a culture that is inhospitable. I mean, 17% approval rating on the last bill. So a culture that's largely inhospitable to Republican reforms for Obamacare in an attempt to maybe turn around a really sympathetic figure. And he did all that. But when he did that, he ceded to Jimmy Kimmel the ability to decide if the bill passes his test and Jimmy Kimmel decided it does not. Now, I would say if Jimmy Kimmel's decision was clearly wrong or based on lies or based on misinformation, then yeah, we should say that. We should say Jimmy Kimmel is disqualified from rendering this judgment. But none of that is true. His monologue was well-informed. It didn't require rhetorical ledger domain. Here was Senator Cassidy's answer on how helpful his bill would be and to whom he was asked on a CNN. 
States like Maine, Virginia, Florida, Missouri, there'll be billions of more, billions more dollars to, to provide health insurance coverage for those in those states who have been passed by by Obamacare. Yeah, states like those, just to randomly pick a few states. But then he was also on MSNBC, and when he was asked if his bill passed the Jimmy Kimmel test, here's how he answered. There'll be more people covered under the Graham Cassidy Heller Johnson Amendment than are under status quo, and we protect those with pre-existing conditions. There'll be billions of dollars for coverage for working families in states like Maine, Virginia, Missouri, Florida, and elsewhere. Yeah, Maine, Virginia, I don't know. Let me look at a map here. Florida, there's one. What else? Let's say Missouri. Huh. Was this just a talking point that he had nailed down? No. Because the fact is, he wasn't just naming a bunch of states, implying that all the states are going to improve. What he was doing is cherry-picking the states that will be winners. Of course, he's not mentioning that there are states who will be losers under his plan. And how it works is this. The states that took federal dollars to expand Medicaid under the Cassidy-Graham plan, will lose out. They will get less money from the government. And the states that did take the money did it because the governors, and sometimes Republican governors, said, well, the federal government is giving me money to help the health of my citizens. Well, I better take it. But the governors that stuck their feet in the mud or heads in the sand or were doctrinaire and said, I will not take it, under the Graham-Cassidy bill, if it passes, those are the guys who are going to get rewarded. And it's not exactly a red state, blue state thing. True, California, Illinois, New York, some pretty big states will suffer under Graham-Cassidy, maybe not greatly. The states that will really suffer acutely are a mix of red and blue, big and small, rural and metropolitan. Arkansas, Arizona, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Maine, Iowa, Alaska, Maryland, New Mexico, North Dakota, West Virginia, Montana, and yeah, Louisiana. Louisiana's secretary of the Louisiana Department of Health, the top health official in Louisiana, Rebecca Gee, wrote an open letter to Cassidy saying that his bill would cost the state, her state, his state, their state, $3.2 billion in federal funding through 2026. She noted that this would make Louisiana the eighth biggest loser of those states affected by his legislation and by far the poorest and sickest state affected by the cuts. But Bill Cassidy's a doctor. Yeah, Rebecca Gee's also a doctor. She has five kids, by the way. Her Twitter bio IDs herself as mother of dragons, parentheses, five. Anyway, even the National Review, in an assessment of the folly of letting Jimmy Kimmel weigh in on healthcare policy, could not rouse a counter argument to what he was saying. The National Review could not say that Cassidy was right and Jimmy Kimmel was wrong. Let's hope that this bill never does get to violate the Jimmy Kimmel test because it fails the majority of the Senate test in a vote that Mitch McConnell says could happen as early as next week. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader, who wants his milk not to slide off the table sideways, thus passing the Ernie Kovacs test. Mary Wilson, gist producer, likes her programming to last eight weeks or less, thus passing the Magic Johnson test. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, doesn't want anyone to know what he's up to, thus passing the Joey Bishop, Pat Sajak, Chevy Chase, and David Brenner tests. The gist... We are built to survive a fall from a five-story building in New Rochelle, thus passing the falling from a five-story building in New Rochelle test. Don't overthink this one. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.